Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 3rd, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not the God of the Jews. And thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present another End Times update with Donald Fox. Our listeners may remember that Donna and I had done a series of four podcasts titled Beginnings and Ends, probably about two years ago, if I had to guess, and last May we did an End Times update, which was just a discussion of where we thought we were on the prophetic scale. Tonight, I believe Don wants to go a little deeper into scripture and and a little deeper into history than we went last time and have a discussion about the state of our race in the world and, and where it is concerning scripture, which we've discussed in the past, but it's good to rehash and, and refresh our thoughts about these things periodically, because this is where our focus should be as Christians. We should all be waiting for Babylon to fall, and we should all be ready and know what to do when it falls. And I pray that we get into some of that. I don't know how far we'll get this evening. Don has quite a bit of material that he'd like to to discuss. Hello, Don. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me back, Bill. Uh, good to be back on the show. And uh, you know, let's have a good discussion here about uh, you know, where we're at, um, where we've been, and hopefully where we're going. Yeah, I'm sure it'll take a while to develop these formats, that this format, but it might work. Maybe we'll get it down to the point where we could make it relevant every six or eight months or whatever, whatever you have time for. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. I was like, well, let's take a fresh look at, you know, the beginnings and ends and, you know, what's happened in current events. Do we, do we notice any trends? Um, what do we see around us? You know, I guess... You know, maybe as a caveat, you know, we could just throw out there that, hey, look, uh, neither one of us is claiming to be a prophet, and we can't predict the future. Um, we know what Scripture says, but, you know, exactly how everything is going to play out, you know, is, is a little beyond us. But what we can do is, is read Scripture and notice the things that are going on around us and say, hey, well, I'm seeing this, and it looks like it's kind of fulfilling one of these Scriptures that I read. Well, well, it's the signs of the times. It's as it was in the days of Noah, and and in the days of Noah, there that there was evidently massive miscegenation, and and it was seen to have been very much like Sodom and Gomorrah. It it's incredible to me <clears throat> how far they've advanced this um that this idea of the transsexual of of that. That they're basically bolshevizing sexual relations, and and they've advanced this so far in just a very short time. It, it's incredible. There's like how many genders now? That the, there's only two genders, right? But but I mean, they've got a whole list of these that these um, abbreviations for these different gender identities that that they expect people to know. It's like the hell with that. I I, I mean, I know. M and W, and that's about it. <laughs> or M and right. F. 
Yeah, the UN, I think, I don't know, some Jew at the UN came up with, uh, is it 58 gender classifications or some shit? Um, but we know, I mean, all you have to do is crack open Genesis and it says, God made them male and female. Right. It doesn't go beyond that. It's incredible that, that the, um, right, it's, it's, it's actually, um, Bolshevizing gender. That's what they've done. And, and they're going to Bolshevize our children next. It, it's going to be pedophilia. And, and that this whole, um, me too hashtag, that there's a, that there's a, um, a darker side to this. I, I really think that they're t- trying to keep sexual perversity and, and sexual licentiousness in the, the mainstream dialogue so that they could normalize all this behavior ultimately. Well, that's the goal. I mean, uh, homosexuals reproduce through abuse, and we're seeing the abuse now is more and more rampant. Um, you know, there's they're they're sucking more and more people into this. They're mainstreaming it. I mean, the homosexual community was forced underground for a long time, and in the last ten years, it's just exploded. I mean, in the workplace, twenty years ago. Nobody, open homosexuality was not accepted anywhere. And right. at my last job in Minnesota, um, managers were on the pride team, and they had rainbow badges on their on their ID badges. Wow. How does that, now that man is basically acting the part of the whore, the the whore of Babylon. Yeah, advocating for degenerates. And, and that's company management. That's incredible. I I I I, I don't know what other adjectives to use. It, it's it, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. It, it's total that's, degeneracy. It, it's, that's exactly what it is. And, and you have to wonder, okay, something this degenerate, you know, how long can it really stand up? How much longer can this corrupt of a system, you know, stay afloat? It really makes you wonder. Well, well, it's yeah. You know, we have less and less um, solid middle class working people every year. The taxpayer pool gets smaller and smaller. The dependable taxpayer pool. And, yes, and they keep and piling more and more burdens on top of that pool. So, so there's got to be a breaking point sooner or later, I would imagine. Yeah, but, yeah. For one of the articles I read, you know, prepping for this show, talked about Baltimore and the plight of that city. And their zip code has got one zip code in Baltimore has the highest vacancy rate in the country. There's just abandoned building after abandoned building. And it's like Detroit, where the white people flee for their lives after the nigger riots, and Baltimore and Detroit have had plenty of those. And uh, what happens then is the taxpayer moves out, moves to another suburb or something, still works wherever he was working, and uh, then what happens is there's no money put into the, the, the public infrastructure and that zip code, because all you have left there are niggers, and all they can do is 
is take. They can't produce anything. The average nigger costs the taxpayer $10,000 a year. That's on the federal level. Now, that doesn't count the state and local, so I'm sure there's similar numbers for state and local. I just haven't seen them. And so you've got a class of people that just devour things. So a million Africans is equal has the equal effect on a city as a 50 to 75 kiloton nuclear weapon. Now, no doubt. Take, Detroit's the proof of that. <laughs> yeah, it now it now it takes it takes you know a million Africans it takes them 30 to 50 years to flatten a city, but they do flatten it. And I, I was watching one YouTube clip. They were interviewing this black dude at a barber shop and he was talking about how you know, once the houses sit vacant for a certain amount of time, they just go through, they strip out all the copper, all the, all everything. It just, you know, it's just like termites. There's just nothing left. They steal the siding, they steal the copper pipes, they steal the copper wiring, they sell it all for scrap, they steal everything they get their hands on. Yeah. In Detroit, there's, ambulances won't go to certain parts of town because when they stop to pick somebody up, um, the the apes will come over and like steal the tires right off the ambulance. I wouldn't doubt it, and and probably the syringes from inside. That the yep. um, I, I don't know. They were selling houses. I, I I don't know about today, but ten years ago, they were selling houses in Detroit for one dollar. Yes, hoping yeah, they, that, they were just trying to entice people to come in and rebuild it, but. Nobody with a brain would go there and buy a house. Because, I mean, if you did buy a house there, you would have to stay there 24-7 just to protect it. You couldn't go earn a living somewhere else because the minute you left, the place would get broken into and everything in there would be stolen. Or somebody would just squat there and change the locks while you were gone and you'd have to, and you'd have to go to court to remove them. You couldn't just go in there and, and clean them out. Yeah, it's incredible. That the the, the, um, the laws and the court systems are definitely stacked against us. I mean, they're having that problem in England, in in Great Britain as well. They're they're um, people are constantly having problems with squatters, and and the courts won't let them remove the squatters. So so you end up with a house full of Nigerians that decide that your house looks good enough to move into, and you can't move them out. Yeah, it takes 90 rights. days or whatever, 120 to, to to get the sheriff to evict them. And, you know, but then they just go to some other house and take that over. And and then by the time you get back in your house, it's there's nothing left of it. That's um that's the state we're in. That, that That's um strip bare and naked. That, that's yep. how we're to be left for our sins. And and that's the um, the beast. Yeah, you know the whore joins herself to the beast, as it's described in Revelation, and the beast ends up eating her flesh because the beast hates the whore. That's Revelation chapter seventeen. That's where well, we're at. I mean, that is where we are at. We are seeing that our race has accepted egalitarianism. And, and accepted the Jews as God's chosen people and accepted the state of Israeli and all world politics revolve around the, this false Jewish state in Palestine while the Jews cry oppression 
and the Holocaust that never happened, and and our race is altruistic, and we fall for these lies, and we let them get away with anything they want in, in because of those lies, and and that's the, the the woman, our race, the bride of Christ, the white Christian race, has joined itself to this beast, what which is world jewelry at the head and and we're being torn apart our flesh is being eaten by this beast yep that's where we're at right now yeah I mean that's and I, I also think Revelation 20 um, is is a very good description of where we're at too well, well right and that's because the revelation isn't um one continuous prophecy of things that are going to happen chronologically in the future. Yeah. The Re- Revelation 20 actually summarizes, it, it states, it's, it's a Hebrew parallelism. Parallelism. It, if you look at, through the Hebrew prophets, you'll see, um, you'll see lamentation, the lamentation over Tyre, the king of Tyre, and then the prince of Tyre in Ezekiel. They're both talking about the same entity. You'll see multiple um, prophecies and lamentations of the fall of Jerusalem in Jeremiah. They're all talking about the very same event. It's not um, sequential it's not prophecies of sequential events it's multiple prophecies of the same event and and that's revelation chapter 20 it's giving like a separate overview type of prophecy repeating or discussing the same events that revelation chapters 16 through through 19 had had discussed except that it's an overview and 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 it it transcends those previous chapters and and summarizes from a different perspective so that you can look at that and understand more of the the um prophetic ability of god his ability to reveal to men the future and and know even more soundly that god is true it it's takes a long time to study the revelation to really understand it but Revelation chapter 20 is going back and describing in different terms the the it, it's foretelling in different terms what would happen in the future that was already foretold in the chapters before it. And Revelation yeah, a lot chapter of this stuff, like you said, it's kind of restated. Right. It, it's yeah, a restatement. It's just like Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. If you study them, that they're both telling the same story. It's not sequential, and it's not two different prophecies. Ezekiel chapter 38 tells about the invasion of Gog and Magog, and then Ezekiel chapter 39 is a separate prophecy telling about the invasion of Gog and Magog. They're both describing the same thing. They're drawing different pictures of the same future events. And that's what Revelation chapter 20 does. Yeah, yeah, a lot of these statements are concurrent. You know, they're not they're not this linear timeline that a lot of our so-called prophecy experts would have you believe. <sighs> Most of them are clowns. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And I'll then, try to explain that better in the next version of Christ Reich. I, I I pray that it's going to be 
uh, probably the very end of this year and, and early next year. Yahweh willing. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Christrike, and uh, I did, you know, I did study that heavily in preparation for this show. So, uh, um, so I guess I was going to start, you know, my my rant with uh, uh, Revelation 20, uh, you know, uh, four through six, um, and just you know, just everybody can just kind of listen to this and then look around you, you know, think in your mind's eye what's going on around you. Um, and I saw that I saw thrones and they who sat upon them and judgment had been given to them and the souls of having been beheaded on account of the testimony of Yahshua and on account of the word of Yahweh and who did not worship the beast nor his image and did not receive the inscribed mark upon their foreheads and upon their hands. And they lived and ruled with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first restoration. Blessed and holy is he having a part in the first restoration. Over these the second death does not have authority. But they shall be priests of Yahweh and of Christ and shall rule with him for a, the thousand years. And now now there's a... Um, let, let me just explain something real quick. There's a, a passage in there that is not in the earliest manuscripts, but it's seen in the King James Version, where it says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And that is... That precedes what we have here in verse 5, which is, this is the first restoration. And that line confuses, it, it causes complete confusion trying to, um, trying to interpret this prophecy. But the, the, the simple solution is that that line was added in in the Middle Ages. It was added in to the text. It's not part of the original text. No, and it, yeah, and th that's when this thousand-year reign occurred was in, in the Middle Ages, and most Christians today have no idea that happened. And you know, dare I say, I wonder how many people back then even knew this is what was going on. You know, I, I haven't really found any uh, historical or you know literary reference to saying, "Hey, we're we're in the thousand-year reign of Christ now." We had we had been in the thousand year reign of Christ, the first restoration, the first restoration of the kingdom of God to the children of Israel. That's the restoration that the apostles were expecting when Christ told them before He ascended in Acts chapter one that they asked, "Is it are are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time?" And He said, "It's not for you to know the times or the seasons." That's the restoration that's being spoken of here. And that restoration, when white, the white nations of Europe finally accepted Christianity, that was the ancient children of Israel who were returning to Christ, returning to their God in Christ. And they had expelled the Jews from Europe when they accepted Christianity. And, and there was a great struggle over that. And, and that's when the Jews went and got their, the, the Muslims and, and organized Islam and organized the Turks and started to attack Europe from the outside. But those white Christians that expelled the Jews from Europe and expelled them from their governments, from their communities, even if they didn't expel them 
physically and and they they were actually readmitted a couple of centuries later but they were kept separate and they were kept contained and that containment was the the keeping of satan in the pit that was the keeping of the devil and satan in the pit so that this beast is the um that the people didn't worship is global trade, global commerce that the people of Europe didn't practice for a long, long time. And and they kept their lives clean and simple and, and Christian. And the Jews love to call it the Dark Ages, but those ages weren't dark at all. So for a thousand years the the Christian monarchies had had ruled Europe and and had ruled Europe free of Jewry. That's the key. Free of the control of Jewry. Yep. The Jewish contagion was was contained. You know, they were stuck in a petri dish. Um, yeah, I, I found a uh, a nice little article on uh, my Jewish learning. Um, and it's the title was: In many cities, Jews were forced to live and work in specific areas. Uh, the ghetto refers to an enclosed place where European Jews were once relegated to live. Uh, the term derived from the Italian guitar, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, which refers to the casting of metal, was first used in Venice in, in 1516 when authorities required Jews to move to the island of uh, Caregio, uh, the ghetto Nuovo, or New Ghetto, across from an area where an old copper foundry was located, uh, the ghetto of Vecchio, or the old ghetto. Uh, the ghetto in Venice was enclosed by a wall and gates that were locked at night. Jews had to observe a curfew and were required to wear yellow hats and badges to distinguish themselves, a practice that the Nazis would later adopt in the 20th century. The ghetto in Venice was crowded, and therefore it was necessary to add new floors onto existing buildings, leading to the first so-called skyscrapers. <laughs> While the 1516 law creating the ghetto limited Jews' freedom of mobility. To some degree, it was less severe than the policies elsewhere in Europe where Jews were often forced to leave altogether. But, you know, inside the confines of the ghetto, Jews had the autonomy to govern themselves and sustain their own social, religious, and educational institutions. Um, Though the term ghetto was first used in Venice, this was not the first instance of Jews being forced into segregated quarters. Compulsory uh, segregation of Jews was common in medieval Europe, and these Jewish areas were often re- were later referred to as ghettos. Uh, the, Lateran, the Lateran Council of 1179 and 1215 advocated for the segregation of Jews. A ghetto-like community existed in 1262 in Prague, and in the 1400s became uh, more common in, in other European cities. Uh, in 1460, the Judengasse, Jews Alley in Frankfurt, was established. Well, well, right, and let me say that, you know, that the, the Jews try to recall their centuries in the ghetto as if they were being oppressed during those centuries. And that's not true. That The Jew might consider it oppression, but there was natural segregation of people of different races in Europe all throughout history. Uh, I'm going to read a short passage from Strabo, 
Strabo of Cappadocia, the geographer who died around 25 AD, he died. And this is from book 17 of his geography. And he was describing Memphis. And he said that Memphis in Egypt, and he said that the city is both large and populous and ranks second after Alexandria and consists of mixed races of people like those who have settled together at Alexandria. And to Strabo, he would mention that because he would be surprised by it. The ancient Greek cities had restricted areas for visitors who could not simply rent an apartment wherever they chose. You couldn't just move into a Greek city if you were not a Greek and buy yourself a house and and start a family. You couldn't do that. You weren't from their tribe. You were not... You, you couldn't even expect to be able to do that. You had a restricted area for visitors where you would have to stay. And at night, you couldn't be found in the rest of the city. You would have been shot with an arrow at that time, but you would have been shot. You couldn't simply live wherever you chose. They had these restricted areas where, where there were lodgings and embassies and, and other places where outsiders could stay. And those areas were in designated neighborhoods, usually near the city gates, near the markets. And, and it was practically unheard of to simply move into a town or city which was founded and settled by another tribe. That's why Strabo mentioned it concerning Memphis and Alexandria, because it was novel to him. And and even in Alexandria, right? If you go to the Jewish Virtual Library article on the Jews at Alexandria, it's actually pretty pretty um pretty fair where it states that Jews settled in Alexandria at the beginning of the 3rd century BC. They really mean Judeans. They don't mean these modern Jews. And according to Josephus, already in the time of Alexander the Great, at first they dwelt in the eastern sector of the city, near the sea. In other words, they had a Jewish quarter, or a Judean quarter, and that's where they had to stay. That would have been considered a ghetto, right? And and then in the Roman era... During the Roman era, they spread out through the city and and built synagogues everywhere. So only under Roman rule did Jews have the privilege of living wherever they chose to in Alexandria. And and that's all throughout history. And and it's not only with Jews. A, a Spartan, a Dorian Greek couldn't just go to Athens in, in early Greek history and buy any house he wanted and, and live there he would have never been trusted. He would have been hung as a spy. Yeah. Um, one thing I've noticed is that segregation preserves the white race. You know, when we keep outsiders out, that preserves our social structure, our people. It keeps them out of our breeding, you know, out of the DNA pool, you know. And... There's no reason that a people are supposed to just, you know, throw all their resources over to another people. None of the ancients did that. Right. Even Germans and Englishmen didn't do that. Or or Italians and Austrians didn't do that. It's not just with Jews. Yeah, and now they want us to, you know, you know let these Aztecs and these Mayans and these Africans and... 
you know, MS-13 and, well, they all got to come in and get welfare benefits, you know. And it's, 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 it, it flies in the face of thousands of years of, of society. And it can only, the, you know, the, the ultimate goal of this can only be to destroy society. Absolutely. And, and that's obviously we know that, you know, and the people listening to this show, I'm sure, would, would know that. You know, maybe we'll pick up a few new people, but I, I don't think the average Christogenia listener would be shocked at that. Um, so, yeah, so the Jews were in the pit. You know, so, you know, when I first heard you say that, I was like, well, geez, when did we really ever, really, did we really ever get a break from the Jews? And yeah, I looked it up and sure enough, yeah, we, we did. Um, they were contained, you know, they weren't, you know, contrary to what the Jews, we've never killed them en masse. We've, we've actually preserved them all along, you know, by, con- by containing them, we didn't string them up, you know, we didn't shoot them. You know, there's sure there's been talk of that, but I mean, Jews are obviously incompatible with our society. They just aren't. They're they're devils, and um, um, so yeah. And you know, one other take I had on on this was that um, you know, so so verse six there states that the second death has no authority over the first restoration. You know, the, those people, but. It doesn't say that the first death does not. So these were mortal people, and they were basically ruling with Christ for a thousand years. But you know, some of the some of the prophecy people today will tell you, "Oh, the, the thousand year reign is coming, and we'll all be immortal." While this is going on, and that's not what it says. No, not at all. It, it's um. The, the second death. Jude calls certain people twice dead because they don't have the spirit of God. The second death is the the, the death of the the spirit, the individual after the death of the body. Yes, and the white Europeans, th- that second death has no authority over them. No, because they are the children of God. And and yeah. that they have redemption and eternal life in Christ. Yes, so that's our saving grace, as it were. Um, well, well, that's why um, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. That that they that they can kill the body, but we should fear He who can kill the spirit, which is God. And we shouldn't fear those who can kill the body. The Jew can't win. In the end, the Jew can't win. God wins. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. God will win, and we will win in the end. But you know, it's just a matter of you know how bad is it going to get between now and then. You know, when are we ever going to learn that we should be um, that we should submit ourselves to God? That's the problem. What we all want to be God. That that's the biggest problem with white nationalism. That they all want to be God. All these white nationalists want to be God. That they want to call the shots and save their race. Christ already did that. They're all going to fail. Until they submit to Christ. That's the only way we succeed. 
Well, my thought was, well, first, what what is the kingdom of God? I'm like, well, that's that is white nationalism. That, that's a form of it. And you know, the second thought is, you know, I think we'll submit ourselves to God when I guess when He's ready to take us back. Um, you know, obviously, you know, folks like us have, have already done that, but you know, I think in mass, you know, I don't think you know it, it says the kingdom will be handed over to the beast until. The words of Yahweh will be fulfilled. So, until everything is fulfilled, we're still on the outs. That, that's kind of how I see well, it. Well, right. That's because God knows that we're not going to submit to His will. If we all started keeping the commandments tomorrow, if we stopped um, trying to bang each other's wives, if we stopped handing our money over to the Jews for their entertainments, if we stopped our race mixing, if we stopped our, um, all of the other sins that we see in our society. How about porn? How, how about gambling? It, if we stopped all of these things and, and started to care about one another again, which we used to, and if families started to stay together again, the, the Jew would not have a chance and, and, our lives and and the course of our future would be a lot easier. But Yahweh God does know that we're not going to do that until we're absolutely compelled to do it, until we're forced to do it. Yeah, eventually every knee will bow. Um, it's just what what do we have to go through to to get to that point? You know, I mean we're. Obviously, we're—I think—we're slated to get, you know, uh, a certain amount of punishment. Um, so, okay, so so moving on to, to verse seven, um, and when the so of course it was a thousand-year reign, so it wasn't going to be this, you know, uh, unlimited reign. So it did come to an end, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. So uh, eventually, the Jew got his emancipation. Absolutely. That's absolutely what that refers to. Yeah, so it, it took 150 years, but uh, that, that process started, you know, you know, uh, I, I think it was in France, but it, you know, eventually it went to Germany, and uh, the fruits of that, you know, the, the final kind of coming out party was the French Revolution. Um, and right. know, around this time, this is when we see these secret societies just start popping up, you know, the Illuminati... Uh, the Freemasons, um, you know, various other secret societies that, uh, you know, the whole goal being to subvert uh, the uh, white European aristocrats. The, the goal of the Jew was complete destruction of white Christian society. And the first step in that was the French Revolution, and then right on the heels of that you had the Bolshevik Revolution, in Russia, and then you had, you know, the, the Federal Reserve here in the United States taking over in 1913, and uh, then you had World War One, which was Jewish. And I was debating our, our friend John Hankey um, last Wednesday on uh, the new JFK show, and um, he was talking about, well, isn't what's wrong with liberty, equality, and fraternity? I'm like, well, it, it's a, it's a bullshit Jewish Jewish slogan. I mean, it, 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 you know, I mean, really, it was an empty slogan. But 
you know, for them, they wanted to be seen as equals, so they didn't want to be stuck in the in the ghetto anymore. Right. So, really, what what the slogan? I guess what it meant, maybe in practicality, was what was the the outcome of it? It was basically the Jew going from the ghetto to the palace. That's kind of how I see it. Well, well, that that was the 19th century um, transformation from the the autocratic monarchies to the liberal parliamentary democracies, and 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 in the protocols of Zion, they boast that as soon as that happens, that gold will become the new king, and and that's exactly what happened. The power of money became the ruling factor. In, in Christendom rather than the inherited nobilities. Yeah, and here's the, yeah, right in protocol, uh, protocol uh, one here. Um, we shall end liberty, you know. Far back in ancient times, we were the first to cry among the masses of the people the words liberty, equality, fraternity. Words many times repeated since these days by stupid Paul Parrots who who from among all sides flew down uh, upon these baits and with them carried away uh, the well-being of the world, true freedom of the individual, formerly so well guarded against the pressure of the mob. The would-be wise men of the goyim, the intellectuals, could not make anything out of the uttered words of the abstractedness. They did not see that in the nature there is no equality. There cannot be freedom, and nature herself has established inequality of minds, of characters, and capacities, just as immutably as she has established subordination of her laws. Never stop to think that the mob is a blind thing, that upstarts elected from among, among it to uh, bear rule are in regard to the political, the same blind men as the mob itself. That's absolutely true. Equality is a false god, and and Christians only have liberty in Christ. Liberty without Christ is also a false god. Yeah, and it goes on to say, uh, I like this one too, or it, I think it's very telling. In all corners of the earth, the words liberty, equality, fraternity brought to our ranks thanks to our blind agents, whole legions who bore our banners with enthusiasm. And all the time... Uh, these words were canker worms that work boring into the well-being of the goyim, putting an end everywhere to peace, quiet, solidarity, and destroying all the foundations of the goy states. That's exactly what we've seen the last hundred years. That the idea of fraternity is is false. You can't be. You can't have fraternity with a man who is not your kindred, who is not really your brother. A fraternity is brotherhood. And and if somebody's not your brother, you can't have fraternity with him. It it's destructive to your own race and and your own society. Yeah, there's no equality with Africans. You know, they, they have seventy IQs. Okay, they, they've they've accomplished nothing. There's no African society that's ever produced a surplus. So. Obviously, they're not equal to us. If, if they were equal, then Africa would have looked just like Europe. Right. But except you don't find any castles in Europe or in, in Africa. You don't find um, there was no coliseums in Africa. 
You know, there was no great roads that went anywhere. There was no chariots, no farming. But we no. was Kangs. We built the pyramids. They can't even <laughs> spell pyramid, right? <laughs> they can't spell king right either. You know? <laughs> you know, and one source by, you know, they talk about cultural appropriation. Well, how about English? You know, those apes never developed their own written or spoken language. So anytime you see an ape speak or, or attempting to speak English, that's cultural appropriation. Well, well right. White missionaries, um, short-sighted white missionaries had made their alphabets for them, had tried to make their dictionaries for them. <sighs> they didn't have those things before. They didn't have any thought of those things. They didn't want or need them. Yeah, okay, and then uh, back to Revelation, so uh, 20, uh, verse 8. And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. So, to me, I, I see that as being all the white nations which, which are spread out all across the planet. Um, it, obviously, that this cannot mean this outlawed Jewish state in Palestine. Well, well, right. The woman is joined to the to the beast, and and this is an overview of those um, of, of those chapters. And and the beast hates the woman and eats her flesh. This beast is um, world Jewry, international Jewry, and hates the woman and eats her flesh. It's it's the system that's set up by international Jewry. And the dragon being Satan and the devil gives its power to the beast, which we learn in Revelation chapter 13. So so this beast system that the woman has joined herself to, this central banking international commerce, system of international globalist commerce that the woman has joined herself to, that the, the heads of that hate the woman and devour her flesh. These nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, that this is all of the non-white nations. Yep, yeah, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up upon the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about. And that's where we are today, right now. We are flooded. Right. Uh, I mean, there is no question about it. I mean, I'm down here in Austin, Texas now, and it's it's 49% white. Now, now there's three prophecies that, that tell the same story. The other two are in Ezekiel chapter 38 from one viewpoint, and and then in Ezekiel chapter 39 from a slightly different viewpoint. Those three prophecies, and and you'll see the words Gog and Magog there also, and and they're all telling the same story. Ezekiel 38 and 39, of course, are are much more detailed, and and that would be a study in itself. Yes, and, okay, so, yes, Gog and Magog, so that's basically, you know, I guess as we see that is that's Satan, you know, the the, the international Jew, uh, getting our governments to adapt open borders policies and adapt policies basically that are designed to replace the native white population. And if you object to this, you are called a nativist, a xenophobe, a racist. Racist. 
Yeah, if you object to your own replacement by a mud person, then you are a nativist and a xenophobe. You're demonized. You become the devil. They they yep. try to make you the devil. Exactly. When actually they are the devil. And they're identified as the devil in scripture. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. I mean the devil is not a guy a red a guy in a red suit with a with a tail and a pitchfork. You know, he's the international Jew. That is Satan. And basically this you know, and a lot of people interpret this Gog and Magog to be uh, an armed military conflict. And, you know, we've talked about that, and I know you have many times, that this doesn't necessarily need to be an armed invasion, although a lot of them do have weapons. Um, it's not an organized military assault, you know, with the flag and all that stuff. It's just an all-out invasion. Well, it, it's a perfect way for the woman to join herself to the beast and then for the beast to devour the flesh of the woman. Uh, I mean, that couldn't happen if it was an, an a military invasion. It would be a direct confrontation. But we've actually joined ourselves to this world system, that this system of globalism, this idea of liberty, fraternity, equality. We've accepted these three unclean frogs, these Jewish ideals, and and we've made them our mottos and our philosophy. We've come to own them, and now they're killing us. Yes, and this is the Kalergi plan. Um, and I, I even found a story on, uh, on InfoWars, and, 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 and make no mistake about it, InfoWars is, is a disinfo operation, there's no question. Run by Jews. Um, but, you know, you do get a couple of nuggets every now and again out of there. And uh, this was a story from a couple of years ago, and it said, uh, this scenario seems to fit perfectly with a secret plan of the New World Order, you know, a.k.a. the Jews, known as the, Kurd- the Kudenhof-Kalergi plan, that some people in European right-wing circles say was created for the systematic genocide of the people of Europe. This plan was apparently devised by an Austrian diplomat and Freemason named Richard Kudenhof Kalergi. Uh, he lived from 1894 to 1972. Uh, the Kalergi family roots can be traced back to the Byzantine royalty via the Venetian aristocracy. Now, he was Jewish, too. Um, Kudenhof Kalergi was actually the first proponent of a unified Europe back in the 1920s. And for this reason... Kudenhold Kalergi is recognized as the founder of the first popular movement for a united Europe. Uh, the Kudenhold Kalergi European Prize is awarded every two years to European leaders who have excelled at promoting what is beyond any political or re- religious ideology. And among the past winners are Angela Merkel and uh, Herman Van Rompuy, uh, two of the top pawns of the Bilderberg Club. Um, Clergy's, uh, Kudenhof Clergy's father, initially an anti-Semite, later became a close friend of Theodore Herzl, the founder of Zionism. And many, many think Herzl was, was probably the guy the, the protocols of, uh, Zion were, were bottled after. Um, I think he was one of them. Um, 
Richard Kuhn, old clergy, also had strong connections to the Catholic elite due to his aristocratic status. Now, of course, InfoWars has to throw that in there, but um, in 1922, he co-founded the Pan-European Union with Archduke Otto von um, Habsburg, a staunch Catholic who was head of the Habsburg dynasty and former crown prince of Austria-Hungary. Um, so that's... Um, that's kind of where we're at today with the, the Kudenhove Kalergi plan. Well, well, right, and and wow, Kudenhove Kalergi's father an anti-Semite. I, I would be surprised if that was true. And, and I think Theodore Herzl, he's just another Jew implementing the protocols of Zion, the protocols of Zion, I should say. That yeah. the the, um, the protocols had been around. The ideas expressed in the protocols had been around. A hundred years before Theodore Herzl, as I had shown in my series on the Protocols of Satan through Nesta Webster and other sources, these ideas were floating around these secret societies even before the French Revolution. So, and, and the French Revolution was an implementation of them. So Theodore Herzl was just another Jewish rabbi implementing, um, working towards the objectives of the Protocols. And and I mentioned the the Kudenhove Kalergi plan in several articles, but it only echoes policies which the Jews had long before spread throughout the West through their secret societies. And and I I had written about this I think in Protocols of Satan Part One that the Kudenhoves were supposedly Flemish, they were supposedly a wealthy family, but if you look at how they gained their wealth by um, brokering investments for other French nobles. Yet you'll understand that they probably were Jews. In fact, they almost had to be Jews. That's how they gained their wealth. And and from there, the family had been... From, ever since that they fled to Austria from the, during the French Revolution, they were race-mixing. First, it was with, with the Poles, and, and, who, and the Polish woman, it was supposedly of Greek heritage named Kalergi. She wasn't Greek. She was a damn Turk Jew. And and later they mixed with Jews. They mixed with Japanese. Richard Kudenhove Kalergi is half Japanese. And and he's the author of the Kudenhove Kalergi plan. He had a Japanese mother. And he was a prominent Mason in the early 1920s. He was a Freemason. This pan-European movement was financed by the Rothschilds and Max Warburg and other Jewish bankers. And, and this people don't, um, people don't understand that the European Union eventually evolved out of the pan-European movement and the clergy plan. But Adolf Hitler tried to unify Europe, unify Europe in opposition to the Jews and, and communism and Nazi Germany, or National Socialist Germany, I should say, was actually competing with Richard Kudenhove Kalergi's pan-European plan. So, so they were two competing schools of thought, and, and of course, Kalergi had to flee to America, right? Or he probably would have been um, gassed at Auschwitz? No, I don't think so, but he probably would have been shot. The pan-European movement had several thousand significant members by the mid-1920s, and, and it held a Congress in Vienna in 1926. Kudenhove remained its leader until his death in 1972. 
and and it persisted throughout the war. But Kudenhoe fled to the United States, right? That the um, uh, okay. I, I guess my take on that would be uh, just just one last point would be uh, um, this was a Jewish plan that actually saw the light of day and became public. Well, absolutely. It absolutely did. But Kudenhove continued to write books and articles in America. And after World War II, Harry S. Truman implemented many of Kudenhove Kalergi's proposals as American policy in Europe. Yeah, the big takeaway from, from the Kalergi plan is um, in 1925, uh, in his book, uh, Practical Idealism, he wrote, quote, The man of the future will be of mixed race. Today's races and classes will gradually disappear owing to the vanishing of space, time, and prejudice. The Eurasian Negroid race of the future, similar in its appearance to the ancient Egyptians, will replace the diversity of peoples with the diversity of individuals. And they were implementing parts of this plan right after the First World War. After the First World War, when Adolf Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, he was complaining about the French who planted niggers on the Rhine after the Treaty of Versailles. But, I mean, France has been invaded by blacks for a very long time. And they, they had them to spare, apparently, and they sent them some to Germany. Right. Well, they were using Algerian soldiers, even at that early time. And, and planting them along the Rhine. And then, uh, okay, and jumping back to Revelation, it says, um, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So that's what we're waiting for. Well, well right, and that's, and, and that's also what it says in Ezekiel chapter 39. It draws a very similar picture. But if you study um, many other prophecies, such as Obadiah chapter, um, well, there's only one chapter in Obadiah. Obadiah verses 15 through 18 is also a, a parallel prophecy. Micah chapter 4, I believe, is a parallel prophecy that call to arise and thresh in Micah chapter 4 is the same call that we hear to come out of Babylon and to repay her double what she has done to you in Revelation chapter 18. And and when you correlate all these prophecies, you have to understand that it's the people of God who eventually rise up to become that fire come down out of heaven. Yeah, it, it's coming, but we're not there yet. Well, well, no, we're not there yet because first, not enough of us are repentant and awakened racially to this problem. And second, Babylon hasn't fallen. But no. when Babylon falls, when, when this world financial system, which is kept up artificially, collapses, and we are promised that it will collapse, that's when I believe a lot of our people are going to hear this call and wake the, wake the fuck up. One only hopes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's coming. Um, another scripture uh, that really, I think, describes where we're at right now is, is you know, Revelation 17, uh, verse 7, 17, 17, 17. 
for Yahweh has bestowed it into their hearts to do his will and to have one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of Yahweh shall be accomplished. And then uh, verse 18. And the woman which you saw is the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. So right now we're stuck with our kingdom being handed over to the beast. Right, and we probably did that in 1913. I, I mean, in Europe, it, it happened a little earlier or a little later. In Britain, it happened in, in 1695 when the Bank of England was founded. That this, uh, you, you, most people, I mean, I know we keep blaming France, right, for being taken over and, and invaded by these, the, these Masons and, and subverted, but that came from Britain. And the Jews had had control of Britain, full control of Britain, by the time that the, the, the glorious revolution happened under Cromwell, who was financed by the Jews. And, and that's how they found their way to, to stay in England and to actually start operating in the open after Cromwell came to power. And by 1695, I think it was, we had the Bank of England, which was a totally privately controlled bank that would rule over the English people until this very day. Yeah, and look at what the where the Bank of England has got London today, uh, full of mud people. London is no longer a white city. It's a complete disaster. Right. It's it's as bad as Baltimore or Detroit. Yeah. Yeah, and here's here's uh, you know a little excerpt from uh, uh, Christrike. So it says, the children of Israel and whatever nations they dwell have, through so-called democratic process, voluntarily enslaved themselves to the beast. This has been exactly as Peter has warned that, proclaiming for themselves freedom, they became the slaves of corruption. While the Jew has pronounced liberty, the white Christian world has been placed under the burdens of ever burgeoning bureaucracies and higher and higher taxes. You know, as we've kind of talked about. Um, in order, this system can't exist without us participating fully in it. Well, well right. Look at Obamacare, though. Everybody's forced into it. If you pay, if you fill out an income tax form, you're forced into Obamacare. And, and that's a wealth transfer from you, directly from you, to those Jewish-run insurance companies. It's going from you to the insurance companies. Yes, that's, that's exactly what it is. And it, it also subsidizes you know, brown and black and yellow people as well. Well, well right, because they don't, they don't file income taxes, but, but they get free treatment at hospitals. Yeah, and you know they get, you know, illegal aliens get, you know, free medical care. Um, they get free school. They get subsidies. You know, they get free, you know, food. They get illegal social security numbers. Um, right to work. I mean, just the red carpet is rolled out to them to come in and plunder and pillage. My wife Melissa told me this evening that she was held up in a store. I was waiting for her outside the store, right? She ran into the supermarket to get something. And this Chinese woman was online in front of her. 
And the Chinese woman brought one of the gift cards they have hanging up to the cashier. And the cashier asked for 50 bucks. And the Chinese woman was um, expressed dismay that she had to pay for the gift card. She couldn't understand why she had to pay for it. So I'm waiting for Melissa outside the store. And she's in there. And I don't know what's going on. But she explained to me later that the manager had to come over and, and remove the $50 from the woman's bill at the cash register because she couldn't pay for the gift card. And and my wife's wondering, what, well, does she think they're just going to give her a $50 gift card? And and I told her, well, it's a gift. It, it says gift card. What the hell? <laughs> it, <it's, laughs> they think they, sh- they should just get this stuff, I guess. I, I don't know. But... <laughs> It's they don't think like we do is my point. They don't think like yeah. we do. They don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, we we've, we've rolled out the red carpet for them. We're, we're entirely too accommodating. Well, well, when a Negro goes in a store and and he sees a whole rack of Twinkies, he just can't understand whether he has money or not. Why he can't have some Twinkies? He thinks he's entitled to those Twinkies. They're sitting there. They're not doing anything. That they don't apparently belong to anybody they're in a store the store's a public place why does the negro have to pay for the twinkies they don't think like we do no no i mean yeah those twinkies are just sitting there how come i can't eat them right you're not eating you're not eating them right nobody else is eating them so why can't i that they don't think like we do no they don't well and they shouldn't be expected to not with their 70 IQs, that they're actually animals that we dressed up in our clothes and, and gave space to in our cities, and we expect them to behave like us. Well, guess what? It, it's not working out very well, is it? And And when we give them our toys, like automobiles and firearms, only the worst happens. Yeah, once again, you know, not to beat a dead horse in Detroit, but, um, you know, I've seen a lot of YouTube videos where they don't stop at the stoplights anymore. Um, gunfire is rampant. Um, it, it, it's, it's just, it's the Wild West. There's, there's no go zones in, in major cities now. I mean, London's got no go zones. Detroit, Baltimore. Germany, they're all over Germany, they're all over France, these Muslim no-go zones, where not even the police will go in. But, you know, when I was in um, law enforcement in New Jersey in the 1980s, the, the Jersey City cops would not go into the projects. They wouldn't go. Well, when they got a call for the projects, they usually, un- unless they had 10 squad cars, that they usually just waited out by the front door for the people they called to come down. They wouldn't go in. It, it, it's a non-winnable battle. Don't You can't fight those non-winnable battles. You're not coming out of there in one piece. doesn't matter that you have a badge. So... Okay, so moving on to, to Revelation 18, you know, as we've kind of alluded to here. Um, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. 18.9. Uh, and the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see her 
see the smoke of her burning. Uh, and 10, verse 10, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. Well, well this, so, is, this is where we have to understand that this is parallel to Revelation chapter 20. Yeah. At the same time, this mystery Babylon is at the height of commercial power because this is all built around global commerce. This entire prophecy is centered around global commerce. We can figure out real quick that when the merchants of the earth weep over Babylon the Great City, that Babylon the Great City represents the system of global commerce, that the central banking system, that the international system of credits and debits and all of that, that the um, the security system, that, that, that all, all this worthless paper, that, that everything in, in existence is practically um, a security in, in in some Jews bank vault paper. In in the paper on some Jews bank vault bank vault. It it's incredible. Everything is securitized. Everything is a stock or a bond. And and the stockholders and the bondholders that that are invisible and disassociated own and own quote unquote uh, all of uh, all of existence. It's crazy. Your mortgage is one of those securities. It, it's your student loan. Everything is one of those securities. And and they're sitting in these bank vaults. It, it's all phony. The whole system is artificial. And at the same time, we're being flooded with these aliens. The same Satan that controls the great city Babylon is the Satan who is flooding us with these beasts from the four corners of the earth. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and... So the end of world commerce. So I said, "Well, where where are we on that front?" So I, I did some Google searching, and I, I came across a story from Mail and Guardian Africa um, from a couple of years ago. Empty shipping lane sparks end of world commerce fear. Uh, why Africa should pay attention? It, it's an African publication. I'm surprised um, an empty shipping lane isn't immediately filled with migrant boats. <laughs> Well, this was a couple of years ago, maybe, and it was they were talking about between Europe and the United States. Um, so it says the busyness of world shipping lanes is often taken as an indicator of the health of the global economy, which is why recent reports that on one day last week there were no cargo ships sighted in, in the North Atlantic should be cause for some worry. Uh, the inference is instant that trade between the two, between the world's two. Advanced economic regions is at best flagging and at worst non-existent. Um, the mill went into overdrive. For the first time in known history, not one cargo ship is in transit in the North Atlantic between Europe and North America. One radio station with the New York address said, All of them, you know, hundreds, are either anchored offshore or in port. Nothing is moving. Um, bloggers went, to paint, went on to paint a doomsday scenario. The inactivity meant people were not buying things. Retailers could thus not replenish their stocks, meaning that manufacturers would be unable to produce, and therefore um, we're not ordering raw materials. But I thought everything was made in China now. (laughs) 
Uh, apparently not. And well, China's got its problems too. So uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll hit that in a minute. Um, one, one thing people might want to keep an eye on is, is the Baltic Dry Index. In um, a and the story goes on to say, in a morning newscast, the BBC Wednesday ran a report on it, additionally pointing out that a key shipping index has, in recent months, all but collapsed. The Baltic Dry Index measures uh, the cost of moving raw, uh, major moving major raw materials such as metal, coal, iron ore, um, etc., uh, graded by capacity. Published daily since 1985 in August. It began its precipitous decline after Chinese economic data spooked world markets. It has been plummeting. In May 2008, it reached its highest ever level at 11,793 points. And on January 13, 2016, came in at a record low of 394 points, a near 97% drop. So it, it, it's recovered a bit since then. Um, but in January of, of 2016, global commerce more or less came to a halt. I never heard of this Baltic Dry Index. Uh, okay, one of uh, Dennis Camino talks about that quite a bit. Um, I've listened to a lot of his shows with, with Jim Fetzer, and uh, the Baltic Dry Index is a good indicator to keep an eye on. Um, and then I, I found a story at the end of last year, in December of 17, um, it said shipping stocks rise as the Baltic Dry Index hits four-year high. So after it bottomed out in early 2016, the, the BDI, or the Baltic Dry Index, has been steadily climbing ever since, recently topping 1,500 for the first time since 2014. Um, but remember, in 2008, it was over 11,000, almost 12,000. And... It peaked at the end of last year at 1,500, so it's still down quite a bit. It's only 1,100 right now, 1095, I think. I looked it up real quick, and then my Firefox kind of went blank, right? Firefox yeah. is crashing on me. It, it's horrible. That's it's 1095 right now. I, 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 I guess on a scale of 394 to 11,000, it's still pretty damn low. <laughs> See, that's what I'm talking about. So, are we going to see another zero? It's a freight index. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Okay, I mean, I'm sure there's ways to watch the global economy like this that, that are interesting. I, I mean, I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time getting involved in it. I, I mean, all of this stuff is... Um, the Bal I, I used to read the Wall Street Journal. I read the Wall Street Journal for 20 years daily, and I can't remember this Baltic Dry Index, it, even though the 20-year period was after the index was started. So maybe it just wasn't... I, I was into the tech stuff, so I guess it just wasn't important to me. That all did come from Japan or China. <laughs> There's no doubt. Actually, back in the 80s, a lot of the stuff was still being made here. Until Intel, yep. Until Intel moved out completely, and IBM followed, and Hewlett Packard. Yeah, and, and speaking of China, um, just a quick story on them uh, uh, from Express.co.uk. It said that uh, China on the brink. Um, sudden, con 
contagious and hazardous. China Bank warns Beijing is on the brink of an economic collapse. Um, China have been warned that they are on the brink of financial collapse. In a shock warning from Central Bank Governor, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this guy's name, uh, Zhu Zia, and I'm not even going to, I guess I can't even pronounce that last name, Zia Zhaowin, Zhuan, uh, Zhu I think is the, the first name. Uh, China's financial system is becoming more vulnerable due to high levels of leverage or borrowing, the central bank governor has claimed. Uh, writing an article published on the People's Bank of China website late Saturday, Mr. Zhu warned about the prospect of potential financial problems in the world's second biggest economy. Uh, Mr. Zhu claimed that the country needed to tighten regulation as the governor warned about looming risks. Uh, the central bank governor released his strategy to avoid a financial crisis by calling for equity funding to eliminate zombie companies. Uh, and we've heard that, you know, in the West here with European and, and United States banks being referred to as zombie banks with massive amounts of debt and bad debt on the books. Um, he said uh, financial risks include basic risk association with financial markets and financial institutions. Uh, for example, some unhealthy financial institutions fail to meet relevant standards and may have to be closed or go bankrupt. Uh, by comparison, systemic financial risk can lead to financial crisis, set off dramatic chain reactions in the market, and cause great shocks to the economy and employment. Um, so China is is in trouble too. You know, we we see China as being held up as this uh, wonderful example, but um, you know they've got Jewish bankers there too. But well, right is China, China's economy isn't real it, it's absolutely artificial that that they wow it, it's um i know that china is it is apparently gaining a lot of military and political power because of its manufacturing and industrial base but how much of those items being manufactured in china are being consumed by chinese or used by chinese it, it's all being created for export. That they're just a manufacturing center. Yeah, they they manipulate their currency and uh, to to drive exports. Um, so yeah, the the internal Chinese people don't consume most of what they produce. It's all sent to Walmart or. Right, and 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 they they most of them, from what I understand, actually live in. Um, factory dormitories that they're like prison factories well and another little known fact is and this is something maybe we can talk about in a future show but um, China has got I've heard perhaps as many as 17 essentially vacant cities you know that are less than 5% occupied right in order to keep people employed and doing stuff they just kept building things they kept building buildings and roads in the middle of nowhere. And so there's people that drive like five hours to work, but they get cheap rent in, in a vacant, largely vacant apartment building. Well, well, cash is a useless thing unless you have something constructive to put it into, right? For a government, 
Uh, I mean, they can't just sit and sit and pile up, pile up, pile up, pile up cash. That they're devaluing their own cash unless they spend it, and and push it back into an economy. And and when you don't have a consumer economy, what what are you going to spend it on? What what is the average Chinaman in in his con- in in his um, social and cu- cultural condition what what does he want with all of the things that the average american has i I mean these things are still alien to him that's the way i see it i I mean i know you have your urban chinese that are americanized and they wear jeans and they use iphones and they have smart watches and stuff like that but they're just a tiny percentage of the population yeah the, the chinese communist party people have all the gadgets and stuff and the average worker um basically lives as a slave yeah right and and that's an artificial economy that's never going to sustain itself it it's never going to they they don't have any real um advanced culture to speak of it it's china's just a um just a tool of of world jewelry so that they could get their gadgets made as cheaply as possible and and sold to americans and europeans at the highest possible profit margins that's the way I see it. Yeah, that's that's you're exactly right. Um, and you know, okay, so so okay, so China's a mess. How about here at home? Uh, how about uh, here's a crisis that you know is is close to my heart. I guess the uh, the United States retail industry um, more store closings on the horizon. I found a story from the end of last year, uh, December. 27th, 2017 on USA Today uh, talks about store closing 17 retailers on the 2018 death watch. Uh, I guess it was written by the Motley Fool, so they republished it on USA Today. Uh, it talks about Sears Holdings. Um, everybody knows Sears has, has basically been on life support for a couple of years now. Um, and Here's what their little blurb on Sears is. Leaving Sears Holdings off a list of companies not likely to survive 2018 would be like omitting Tom Brady from a discussion of all-time great quarterbacks. Sears has been removing, been moving in reverse for years, losing money and closing stores at a remarkable rate. Sears has survived only by selling off assets and borrowing money from funds connected to its CEO, Edward Lampert. That carousel may stop soon as the company is running out of things to sell. It currently has $8.1 billion in assets and $12 billion in liabilities as of the close of second quarter 2017. With profits remaining a distant dream, it's hard to see Sears making it another year. Nobody's there, Don. I, I, I was in um, Sears here last week and the week before. I, I lost my eyeglasses, right? And, and it's my only pair of eyeglasses. I, 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 they're gone. Well, well, um, I had to go get eyeglasses. I had another pair of lenses, and I had them. Um, I, I, I brought them down, and they, that they reduplicated the vision, the, the distance prescription in my lenses, so that I could get a pair of glasses to drive. And I have to get a pair of glasses for intermediary range. I need trifocals, right? Well, well, um, I go to get an eye test. After I had the lenses made, I went back a few days later and got an eye test. And both times I parked near Sears and walked through Sears to get into the mall, what, what is a Vision Works store. And, and Sears, 
I passed through it four times, maybe six, and I have to go back later this week. And and um, there there were no customers. It's dead. There are no customers. None. No customers in the Sears. And and Melissa and I had also walked through a J.C. Penney in the mall um, two weeks ago, and and there were no customers there. It's dead. That the only customers in the mall here in Panama City are in the food court. That there are no customers. Nobody's buying anything. Yeah, I remember as a kid going to a Sears in the 70s or 80s, and it was packed every Saturday. You could barely get a parking spot in front of a Sears. And now you can park wherever you want. Right. That the what when you drive around and and the same was true in Bristol, Virginia, when I lived there for two years and and that was several years ago, right? I mean, we've been down here four years now. but when you drive to the mall, all of the almost all of the cars in the parking lot are in the vicinity of the food court when you drive to the mall, and most of the other entrances around the mall, like you'll have the anchor stores at each end have a couple of cars here and there that probably belong to employees. And you can park just about anywhere you want. Well, well I, I, I learned rather quickly the last couple of weeks that the VisionWorks store where I get my glasses, because they're pretty decent. I had a nice elderly white man. He's a thing of the past, right? In a few years he'll be gone and he'll probably be replaced by some sand nigger. But, but I had a nice elderly white man do my eye test last week give me a new prescription. It had been five years since I had one. And and um to cut to, to get to the store you you park outside the Sears and you cut through and get to the mall and that's the quickest route, right? Most of those malls are kinda like that. Well well um there were no customers in the Sears. None. Zero. And and the people that get you know the clerks the 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 cash register clerks and the the appliance guy and that they're all hanging out in the middle of the store yakking with each other. Every time I pass, there's nobody there. There's nobody buying anything. And this store's huge. Yeah, they're all these huge. are yeah. And this is going to lead to another point. We'll we'll pick up here in just a minute. But I just want to go down some of the names, some of the other names here on the Death Watch. Uh, Toys R Us. Uh, which filed for bankruptcy back in September. Um, it also secured $3.1 billion in bankruptcy financing from a group of lenders, though, which suggests that the company will emerge from bankruptcy, but it's not a guarantee. Um, J.C. Penney, uh, Claire's Stores, I mean, there's there's a lot of stores on the death watch. And there's a lot of billion is huge, man. $3.1 is huge. That's a lot of money, yeah, and... Here's, here's a story that I found really telling. Um, this is from Bloomberg.com, um, and this was uh, a story dated November 8th, 2017, uh, by Matt Townsend, uh, Jenny uh, Serene, Emma Orr, and Christopher Cannon. Um, yeah, it goes on. It says, the, uh, the so-called retail apocalypse has become so ingrained in the U.S. that it, is now, it now has the distinction of its own Wikipedia entry. The industry's response to that kind of doomsday description has included blaming the media for hyping the troubles of a few well-known chains as proof of a systemic meltdown. There is some truth in that, and the U.S. retailers announced more than 3,000 store openings in the first three quarters of this year. Uh, 
the reason isn't as simple as Amazon.com taking market share or 20-something spending more on experiences than things. The root cause is that many of these long-standing chains are overloaded with debt, often from leveraged buyouts led by private equity firms. There are billions in borrowings on the balance sheets of troubled retailers, and sustaining that load is only going to become harder, even for healthy chains. The debt coming due, along with America's overset, overstored suburbs and the continued uh, gains of online shopping, has all the makings of a disaster. The spillover will likely flow far and wide across the U.S. economy. There will be displaced low-income workers, shrinking local tax bases, and investor losses on stocks, bonds, and real estate. If today is considered a retail apocalypse, then what's coming next could be truly scary. Uh, until this year, struggling lease trailers have largely been able to avoid bankruptcy by refinancing to buy more time, It'll basically kick the can down the road. But the market has shifted with negative view on retail, pushing investors to reconsider lending to them. Uh, Toys R Us Incorporated served as an early warning sign of what might, may lie ahead. It uh, surprised investors in September by filing for bankruptcy, the third largest retail bankruptcy in U.S. history, after struggling to refinance just $400 million of its $5 billion in debt. And the results were mostly stable, uh, with, and, it, and its results were mostly stable with profitability increasing amid a small drop in sales. Well, well, the problem with this is that in a lot of markets, in, in a lot of markets, in a lot of cities in, in the United States, retail, are the, retail jobs are the only jobs. There aren't any other jobs. You want no. to work in retail in, in, in Bristol, Virginia, where um, my wife's son still lives, and, and he's always looking for work. The only job opportunities are retail and fast food. There are no other opportunities. Yeah, and what what the larger problem here is going to be, you know, like you said, uh, with the loss of jobs for these lower income type people, it's going to be okay. Once Sears goes bankrupt, Sears was an anchor tenant in how many malls out there? Right, just about all of them. <laughs> Correct. So, what's going to happen when Sears goes belly up? So now you're going to have all this mall real estate that's going to be rapidly declining, if not worthless. And and most of these malls already have 20%, 25% empty store space in between the anchors. In between the Sears and the JCPenney. Yet the mall here has a Sears at one end, a JCPenney at the other, and and a Dillard's at a third end. And... and um, 20% of the stores, storefronts in between are empty. So the the spiral you're going to see out of this is, okay, so when, when Sears finally goes bankrupt, and, and they're going to, it's, is it 2018? Maybe it's 2019. Maybe they hang on till 2020, but eventually it's coming. Then all this, all this space in these malls is going to stop producing income. So what happens is is now this real estate is worth a lot less, if not zero. So the property taxes paid to the local governments is going to plummet. So now you're going to see, and, and then from that from that you're going to see things like city services are going to start 
getting cut back. In Detroit, they can barely, they can't really fund the police department anymore. They have police, but they don't really have enough police to respond to anything. They don't have a supermarket yet, do they? I don't think so. They've all, they've all left. So, as these local governments, you know, with these sanctuary city policies, they're going to have less and less money to dole out. And eventually what will happen is the the services are going to stop flowing to the illegal immigrants and the Africans that are here. I, I don't, I, I would love to see that happen. And, and I'm sure that that would, um, would precipitate a, 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 a series of events that led us right down to the path to the fall of Babylon, but but I think that the government would work hard to cut off services to them last. I really do. I I, I mean, we'll see. Time will tell. Well, they will. But what what'll happen is okay. Like in Austin here now, they're having a hard time paying the police. The the they were negotiating the contract for over a year, and it. The whole thing fell through. So even a city like Austin, which is by all outward appearances booming, um, they cannot pay the zookeepers here. Detroit can't pay the zookeepers. I'm sure Baltimore can't pay the police anything. So it, like you, what you have in Detroit now, you have an all-black, you have a black mayor, an all-black city council, I'm sure a black police chief the last, the last time I checked anyway a black force and they preside over the ruins of the formerly white city. Well, well, right. Absolutely. I mean, Atlanta, that there's, that there's probably a hundred cities like that now. So what's really the answer? It, okay. So as, as all these cities and, and even the suburbs now are going to start collapsing too. Um, what's going to happen? You're going to start seeing white flight, and we'll, we'll talk about that in in a minute. I want to maybe go over to uh, another one of my favorite bits is Matthew 25, um, separating the sheep from the goats. Uh, Matthew 25, 25:31. Uh, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So, what, what that means is we know God sees nations as groups of people, not political boundaries. Although God wants political boundaries around white people, he, he really sees the nation as people. And he's going to separate, eventually, white people, are we are going to get separated from the beast. We are going to get separated from these non-whites. That's what, that's what Matthew's telling us here. And to me, that is the... Matthew 25 is the that's the second coming 
Well, well, absolutely. This can't happen until after Babylon falls. But this can't happen until after the people are called to arise and thresh. I don't see this as a single event. Uh, I see this like most other prophecies. When when, when you understand the revelation, it is um, history written in advance, and and you can um, see the events described by the revelation in history like I believe I can identify. You'll see that everything is a process. Some passages that take two or three verses actually describe processes that took three or four hundred years to unfold. Look at Revelation chapter 6 and the fall of Rome. The the fall of Rome started, the decline started in in perhaps the the, the end of the second century AD and, and Rome was invaded by the Huns at the end of the fourth century but it didn't fall until the end of almost the fifth century. It it was a 200-year process for Rome to fall, maybe 300 years, depending on when you want to start counting, right? So, so that that being said, this Matthew chapter 25 and and the separating of the sheep from the goats, that is very likely describing another process which may take several decades to several centuries. Yeah, and I think that process is already underway. Um, starting to do some research. So a, a lot of this stuff, it's all happening at once. So it, like you said, it, it's concurrent. It, it, it describes, it can describe the same event two different ways or apparently only like you described a Hebrew parallelism. Uh, I found an article uh, digging around on the internet um, from the... Uh, UC Davis website, so migration.ucdavis.edu, entitled Immigration and Balkanization, August 1994, Volume 1, Number 7. Detailed analyses of the 1990 census data are reinforcing earlier suggestions that mostly unskilled immigrants move into states and cities, or as mostly unskilled immigrants move into states and cities, unskilled Americans move out. This represents an historic change. At the beginning of the 20th century, mass immigration led to greater racial and cultural mixing, the melting pot. Well, that's when white people were still coming here. The mass migration currently underway, by contrast, is producing white flight and greater ethnic divisions. Demographer William Fry at the University of Michigan noted that most immigrants moved to seven states. California, New York, New Jersey, Florida, Texas, Illinois, Massachusetts, and Massachusetts, and usually to a few cities within these states, such as Los Angeles, New York, and Miami. All of these states, except for Florida, experienced a net outflow, outflow of poorer and less educated U.S. citizens during the late 1980s. As a result, Fry fears that the melting pot theory will not play out very well for today's immigrants. Instead, there may be conflicts between older, better educated, and white U.S. citizens and younger, unskilled minority immigrants. So, we're, we're seeing white flight. And this was back in 1994. This was before the, the massive flood in Europe and before, well, it was after the first round of Reagan amnesty, but before this latest bash. This was a long time ago. Um, but but a lot of the white flight, the whites that flee and land somewhere else, uh, 
don't learn their damned lesson. <laughs> look, look at um, Montana and Idaho. 20, 30 years ago, that they, they, they were staunchly conservative. They were solidly Republican. Now, that, that there's, they still vote red in national elections, but that's going to change soon. They are more liberal than ever. And, and the same thing with Colorado. Colorado has become, has so many people from California that it's become a second California. Especially yeah, and Denver. We, we get a lot of Californians here too. And, and right. And, and, and that they take their liberalism that failed them in California and they flee, but they don't lose their liberalism. I, I don't know. So, okay, and speaking of Idaho, Idaho is the fastest growing state uh, in population. I, you know, here's a story on NPR.org, a bastion of truth, if there ever was one. But <laughs> <laughs> following in the footsteps of the Oregon Trail fur traders, Americans are again flocking to the West in great numbers, according to new data from the U.S. Census Bureau. But, of course, this time they aren't making the journey in covered wagons. Idaho saw its population jump by 2.2% from July 1st, 2016 to July 1st, 2017, leading the nation as the fastest-growing state. Three other western states saw similar growth during that same period, Nevada, Utah, and Washington. The overall U.S. population also grew by 2.3 million. This is the first time in at least a decade that Idaho has topped the list as the fastest growing state, says Molly Cromwell, demographer with the Census Bureau. Domestic migration is the primary factor driving the population growth. We're also seeing that in Nevada. Um, but one thing to note there, though, is Boise is 89% white. Now? It is. Yeah, it is now. So that that leads to kind of the next topic would be, you know, white flight is exit. Um, and, and this is a story I found uh, from Dissident Right. Um, Within the dark enlightenment, there's a concept knowing is exit, leaving a society for another or leaving in order to create your own elsewhere. This is not a new idea, as we've been practicing it for centuries, but the existence of America as a singular entity and not a patchwork of nomadic Indian tribes, stands as a monument to the exit option. Those who first fled from Europe to America in order to live a life according to how they see fit were engaging in exit, and they are not the first. So, today in the absence of available unclaimed land for which to stake a claim to, exit is approximated by many Europeans and European Americans in another form, white flight. White flight is a term originating in the United States and is applied to the large-scale migration of people from various European ancestries from racially mixed urban regions to more racially homogenous suburban and ex-urban regions. Oh, yeah, I experienced white flight on the east side of Jersey City when I was um, 6 to 10 or 12 years old, and... and my father wouldn't leave Jersey City. He moved to the. We moved to the West Side. That was our West. That was our white flight, right? What we, it took the niggers another ten years to find us there. But well, um, a lot of my friends, a lot of the kids I, I, I was in school with as a child in the '60s and '70s, just 
disappeared over the summer and and you'd learn six months later or when school began that they moved to um to the Jersey Shore or to the Poconos or wherever people were fleeing the the cities in in the sixties and seventies to get away from the niggers who were moving up in large numbers from the south and and their population was just exploding that they were going moving into all of the um cities with the highest welfare payments in the north and 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 having ten kids in ten years the The black population is more than double since uh, uh, 1960 in the United States. Since Lyndon Johnson took office, the black population in the United States has more than doubled. Yeah, you know, I think that it probably more than tripled, but they're the most undercounted. Yeah, I mean, that's the official numbers that I've seen. And uh, so is balkanization the answer? we see balkanization is, is white flight 2.0. So as you just described there, we call that process white flight 1.0. That was the 60s and 70s. Mostly moving to the suburbs, but staying in your state. White flight 2.0, that's 90s to the present, and that's leaving the state. And white flight 3.0, we see that as balkanization, uh, forced evacuations, and civil war. Well, well, right. That's what happens after Babylon Falls. That's the way I look at it. Balkanization, a a lot of people, that there are people that are white nationalists that actually think that they are prophets for talking about balkanization. Balkanization is inevitable. In in the scripture, I, I mean, if you don't come out from her, my people, you're going to suffer her punishments, right? If you're white... And you're caught in Atlanta when the system collapses. You're in for a hard time. If you're caught in Philadelphia or in any major urban center, in any area where there are a lot of blacks, more blacks than white, you're in for a very hard time. You better get with your own tribe. You better find your tribe, as the people from the League of the South like to say, you better find your tribe and cling to your own people. And if you do that now, you'll be a lot better off. Because when the when the proverbial shit hits the fan, when the system does collapse, when the state or the city can't afford to pay his cops, and, and the cops walk off the job, the zookeepers as you called them, when they walk off the job, when they don't show up for work because they're not getting paid, because their real allegiance is to their paycheck, and if they're not getting paid, they're not going to come to work and work for free. They're going to stay home and, and figure out ways to feed their families. When, when those times come, and, and they are coming, whites had, had better be with other whites because they're not going to survive. That's right. I mean, okay, in this present system, you can't go to the ballot and vote to get your white city back. It's not going to be on the ballot. So all you can do is vote with your feet. No, you didn't vote to give it away. No, you no, you never went. You it was never on the ballot to have unlimited apes and Aztecs and sand niggers and street shitters invade your town. Nobody right. ever put that on the ballot because nobody would have voted for it. 
No, it's been forced on us through policy. Yes, and the your only recourse is going to be to move. Okay, because okay, white people are not going to take up guns. Although I did see a story where a guy in Italy went and shot four apes that had. Uh, it sounds like they performed a human sacrifice on a on a blonde young white girl. Um, but by and large, we're not going to take up guns and start. We're not going to shoot Jews and niggers in the street. Um, but we can move. Um, we can move away from diversity. And you know, as we've talked about, without white working people to prop up the system, the, the tax revenues of the city, county, and state budgets are all going to crater. You know, when, when people finally flee Chicago, Detroit, and Baltimore for good, it's over. There's still, there are still 12 or 15%. Detroit is still 15, 12, 15% white. Baltimore is still probably 30% white. I think Chicago is 20, 30% white. You know, it's hard to really believe some of these official numbers that we see, but, um, that's, that's where we're at. These, these big metropolises. I've heard Dallas is only 15% white. Wow. I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, I wouldn't doubt it, but wow. It, it's, um, Baltimore is the next horror story, I really believe. I, I mean, I don't, it, it's, whites are, are constantly having problems there. They're constantly under attack there. The, the niggers in Baltimore are constantly chipping out. It, it's not just the one chimp out they had, the major one three years ago. It, it's, they're constantly, um, preying on whites from the suburbs who, want to go to the harbor, but which is the, the, uh, I guess the gentrified center of downtown Baltimore, what, where it's the, the uppies hang out and the, and the nightclubs and the lounges and the restaurants and things like that. And, and they have to pass through the jungle to get to the harbor and, and they constantly have problems. Yeah. I don't know if you ever watched that old HBO show, The Wire, back from, 2001-2002 era, I believe. I used to watch that show uh, back when I had HBO before I was really... Oh, wait, I'm paying Jews for all this shit, but it it was filmed in Baltimore. In fact, it was in that, that zip code I was talking about. Um, uh, which was that? There's that? That one zip code in Baltimore that's got the highest vacancy rate. That, that's where they filmed The Wire. And it was a shithole. The, the city they portrayed there, it was all drug dealers on every corner, and there was turf wars over this and that, and it, it was basically all-out war. And that was in 2002. But what's it like there now? Well, I, I've been to, um, I, I've observed the nightlife over the past year, in in my travels for the League of the South and and my own travels, um, in Savannah, Georgia, in Tallahassee, Florida, just last weekend, in in a lot of urban centers around the South, these kids are absolutely oblivious, and and these young women are walking around the streets at at night, basically half naked the way they dress. And, and they're oblivious to all of the, the, the extant threats 
that that would destroy them in 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 minutes. It, it's incredible the way they walk around. It, it's they are definitely um, partying with the devil. That there's no doubt. It, it's incredible to me the way these in, in New Orleans. It 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 was incredible to us how oblivious that these people were that were in these lounges and cafes in in downtown New Orleans and and just absolutely unaware of the the, the greater cultural and racial battle that's transpiring all around them. They don't care. As long as they're fed, they don't care. Most of my readers, most of my listeners, Mm -hmm. most of my Christiania forum members, the people that are active and in touch with us all the time, are are people that have already been disenfranchised by the beast. That, That they... That they they're, that they see the problems and and they can't deal in in mystery Babylon mystery Babylon they have a hard time getting along in in the secular society so so these people are already outcasts that they're sheep that have already been separated from the goats but it's only a drop of the bucket yeah there's a lot more coming okay yeah here here i here I found my uh story from zero hedge um and uh, oh, but for yeah okay I, I found the numbers so l b j s great society agenda caused a huge uh spike in the african population so in nineteen sixty there were eighteen point eight million apes and in twenty twelve it was forty four point five million even though they kill each other in every city every week yep Low, low IQ violent Africans with their high crime rates and low skills are a huge burden on society. They drain the tax base and eventually the infrastructure crumbles. And here's the story from Zero Hedge. Um, the implosion of America's inner cities is creating the real shitholes and should be on everyone's radar, not Haiti. In Baltimore, Maryland, decades of deindustrialization and 50 years of democratically controlled leadership. Well, it's not Democrats. This is Jews. And turn the city into a failed liberal experiment with a homicide rate on par with Venezuela, a country that is suffering from an economic collapse. In 2017, Baltimore's population crashed to a 100-year low, as Baltimoreans have finally discovered that the gentrification narrative by Kevin Plank, Johns Hopkins, and the University of Maryland medical center could be a distant pipe dream. The fact is the millennial generation is quickly leaving as violent crime has turned Baltimore into America's most dangerous city. Breaking down the racial wealth divide in Baltimore, the figures are truly shocking. When it comes to education, health, and wealth inequalities, Baltimore has the most extreme gaps in the United States. African Americans make up a majority of the total population coming in at 63% or 614,000. But according to to J.P. Morgan, one-third of African-American households in Baltimore has a net worth of zero. And to make matters worse, the unemployment rate for apes is three times the rate of white workers, despite the garbage propaganda from the Trump administration declaring record low unemployment figures for African-Americans. I'm pretty surprised that two-thirds of African-American households in Baltimore have a net worth at all. That's what surprises me. 
Well, I mean, and to get that, I'm sure it's heavily subsidized with the cell phone paid for by, you know, that goes on your monthly bill. and The Obama phone. <laughs> yep, yep. Obama phone! As we like to say around here. Um, and according to a 247 Wall Street uh, report, uh, they analyzed the 30 highest vacancy rates in the U.S. zip codes uh, from housing market data uh, from a company called uh, Adam Data Solutions. Those 30 communities are studied and uh, are situated in 20 inner cities across the United States. Um, and the highest vacancy rate was uh, zip code 21223, a West Baltimore community that has the highest vacancy rate in the United States, coming in at 17.3%. It is the same area where the American drama series The Wire was filmed. It's been suffering from population loss and declining property values over the last several years. Zip 21223 fell from 25,270 people in 2012 to 25,127 in 2016, uh, six-tenths of 1% decline. Over the same period, the median home value in the zip code fell from 86,500 to 69,500, one of the largest drops in real estate value of any neighborhood. Oh, here's a... Um a three-bedroom, one-bath townhome for five thousand dollars. <laughs> on hey, you could you could retire there on Boyd Street in Baltimore. Yeah. Here, here's another one: three bedrooms, one bath, thirteen hundred and seventy square feet, for ten thousand dollars. Here's another one for five thousand dollars: three bedrooms, one bath on Holland Street. Okay, there there are others in the same category for the same price range. Five thousand. You can get a three bedroom home in Baltimore for five thousand dollars right now. Yep, and it's on Zillow. You wouldn't, have to, you wouldn't have to worry about buying a bed either because you'd have to sleep in your bathtub. Right. All the stray bullets. <laughs> right. Hopefully, it's one of those old cast iron bathtubs with the, with the four little yeah. feet. <laughs> Don't replace the old cast iron tub when you buy the place. <laughs> You're going to need it. So that's where we're headed. That's what I'm seeing out there is, just, you know, it, it's, uh, you can see a decay, the palmer worm, the canker worm, the locust, slowly eating away at the trappings of civilization. And it's going on around all of us, right? But how do we make uh, uh, how, how do we make other white people see it that, that that don't already see it? It's impossible. It it is so difficult, even for someone like me that it's been trying it for years, for twenty years. Well, my thought on that is that it's it's probably not up to us, right? Bill Fink, Don Fox, to wake people up. I think when God is ready. He is going to wake up the people. That call doesn't really come until Babylon falls. Yep. So it's going to be a collapse. And if people are hearing my words now, I would say start looking at moving if you have to. Um, if you have school-age kids, you cannot put them in a school that's all apes. 
you're you're just leading the lambs to the slaughter. You owe it to them to move. Yeah, but I've got a job. Well, look, as these cities collapse, there isn't going to be jobs there anymore. There isn't going to be companies. They're going to have. They're going to. They're not going to have a workforce anymore. They're not going to have infrastructure. They're not going to have. In, in Flint, Michigan, the water is it's as bad as it is in in Mexico. Johannesburg ran out of water, didn't it? It's about to in April. Yeah, I was going to say that's our future. Is is South Africa? You know, we didn't really touch on that tonight, but people can look up. They're about to run out of water now. White people are there are now a, a minority of the population. So it's a black, it's a Jew, it's it's a Jew nigger government there, and they're about to run out of water. It, it's. It, I, I don't know how we don't have more problems down south. Well, it, I look at the demographic studies, and there is a lot of lot of apes in Florida, Georgia, Alabama. I, I mean, it's you're really surrounded. I don't know how state. things operate. I, I get mail, and I'm surprised that it reached me. <laughs> the post office here in Austin sucks. I mailed a letter from here to Oklahoma. It took two weeks to get there. Well, I had a... Um, almost three. It took almost three weeks to get there. I had a book order two weeks... Three weeks ago, I had a book order. Six books, put them in a box. A medium flat rate box for the post office. Thirteen bucks, shipped it off. And it came back 11 days later, and the address label had been torn off. You could still read part of it, but the address label had basically been torn off, and I had to pay double postage because some ape in the post office tore off the address label. Uh, I didn't. We didn't tear it off. I, I mean, it was taped. It was clear tape over it. It was still torn off. I, I don't know how they did it. They had to go out of their way to tear that off. It, it's. I, I don't know. That's that. That's a minor incident. It really is, but. It, it's to me, it's it's um, it's representative of of the problems with Negroes running things that nothing works right, that everything gets screwed up. It, it's the post off the postal service is a huge jobs program for Negroes. Well, it's turned into that. The post office was one of the greatest things about this country. You could mail a letter anywhere, and it would get there with, within a week. Any part of the country that was in the seventies and eighties, nineties, but it's become a diversity hiring zone. I mean, it's the post office has fallen mightily. Well, mightily. It 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 really amazes me that we still get mail and we're still able to send mail, and and I know the day is coming when that just breaks down altogether too. And yeah, and there have been come, major I mean, incidents of mail theft of. Uh, of um, mail loss here and there, but it, it's I'm surprised it runs at all. all. All I can say is, all I can tell people is, what we're commanded to do basically is is love God and love our brother, and 
you're going to need to look at if you're if you're in a city that's 20% white, you really need to look at moving pretty much as soon as you can pull it off. Don't say, well, I you know I'll get a new I'm going to get a promotion or da da da. It, none of that's going to matter when the city collapses. And make no mistake about it, all these cities are going to collapse. If you're if you if you're one of the holdovers in Baltimore, Chicago. Miami, Dallas, you need to really look at moving at least to a, a, an outer ring suburb at the, at the very least. Because well, well, right. it's going it, it, to be like the walking dead. Okay, you're, I don't care if you have 10 guns in your house. They're coming. Okay, it's going to be hordes of them. You can't fight them all off. The, the um, what whites not only should move out of the cities and, and out of any area where minorities are the majority, right? That they shouldn't only move out of those places and into white neighborhoods, that they should go a step further and, and they should identify, um, like-minded whites and, and have a plan for a contingency plan for getting together at at the point in time where survival, what we're fighting for one's survival becomes a necessity, that they should have a place to go, they should have a farm or or, or a rural, a, a rural lot at at least of a few acres, and 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 have a place where where, where they can stay and and survive for when the shit does hit the fan. And, and generators and equipment and, and, and things like that. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't go full-scale survivalist, but there should be some sort of contingency plan where like-minded whites can buy a hobby farm or, or something where they could survive on well, when the shit does hit the fan. Because it's coming. I mean, we can all see this. You don't have to be a prophet to see this. And... Like I said, you can only really vote with your feet in this system, and it's not a bad idea to join the League of the South or some similar type organization because you're not going to be able to do this on your own. Well, well, right. I've been encouraging my, my my listeners to join, especially the ones in the South, right, to join the League of the South and and network with like-minded people because that they are like-minded people, and that's the best place. You you can't just be a Christian at home. And you can't just be a Christian on the internet. That that's not going to get you anything. That's not going to do anything for you if you spend your life being the most racist individual in your mother's basement in the inner city somewhere. What's that going to do for you? That you're just spinning your wheels and wasting your time. You have to be a Christian in the real world. And, and to find an organization like that where, where you can meet like-minded people and, and work towards the common objective that we all have and, and make a stand for your Christian values and, and out in the real world, that, that's important. And that's what we should all be doing. We should all be doing that. And yeah. we will, doing that, you're not going to convince the goats. We all know that. We don't do it to convince the goats. We do it to attract the sheep. Right. I mean, what's our job is people like us that seem to have a higher understanding of this is you have to look out for your your brother's sheep that's maybe more of a sheep than you are in more than one sense of the word. But 
eventually they're, they're going to wake up, but it, it's our job to kind of guard the flock, I think, and, and warn the flock that, hey, the, the foxes are coming, or in this case, the Jews. Right. The apes, the, the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Mestizos, the street shitters, they're all coming. They're all here. It, it's, I, I mean, more of them are coming, I have no doubt. But, but it's incredible that the, um, okay, we were in a, a pub in Panama City Beach two weeks ago. And we get, you know, down around this time of year, you have a lot of snowbirds, right? People from, um, Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania come down here and spend a month during the winter. And, and they're older retired people and they stay, that they get out of the snow, right? So, so they stay down here for a month. And, and this place is heavily populated with them. And we observed three older, white adults from somewhere in the north from their demeanor and and the way they spoke it was pretty clear probably the north probably the midwest i consider pennsylvania midwest by the way well well um that these people had two younger men with them and these were older people they were in their 60s right and they had two younger men with them, and they were all sitting around this table in a pub, and they were all together. It was very clear. They were all very familiar with each other. And one of them was some kind of maybe a prairie nigger or an oriental, like a Filipino or something. He had long hair. He had a set of, he had a set of, um, a headset on, and he was listening to music on his cell phone, and he was bobbing his head up and down the whole time. And the other one was a straight sheet street shitter. He, he was from Pakistan or or New Delhi or someplace like that, and and he had this look in his eye of hatred. You could see it on his face. And these, what what are these two doing? With these three older white people from the North Midwest, I, I don't get it. That—that's the—that that it is the degree to which this that this um, diversity bug has infected the people in this country. You would not believe that these people, these two um, street urchins, street shitters, as you call them. And and they were clearly street shitters. That there's no doubt about it. I might put a photograph of them up with this podcast at the end of this podcast, so that people understand what I'm talking about. What are they doing with these three middle-aged, middle-class white people from from rural America? What are they even doing with them? I mean, that's a product of years and years of Jewish brainwashing and open borders policies. Yeah, those people, if they were racially aware and reading their Bibles, would not be doing that. Right, and and these aren't, um, you know, a lot of these rural Protestants are adopting these little nigglets, and it's become sort of a fad, right? The nigglet is a fashion accessory, especially in Hollywood, which sets the moral standards for the rest of the country. The nigglet is a fashion accessory, and every rural Protestant American family has to go get its nigglet, has to have its nigger. 
And a lot of these families have <clears throat> two or three or four-year-old adopted nigglets. Well, well, this isn't the case. These are the, the, these street chitters were in their late twenties or thirties, and and they're with these white people that are in their sixties. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I, 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 it was pretty incredible to me. But that's the degree to which the disease ha- has gotten into our bones. It's incredible. It's a it's a deep deep sickness. So I'll probably get a a photograph of this and and post it with this podcast. <laughs> it's it was pretty funny. I even have a short video I took. I think. Okay. Well, I think we've pretty much covered the gamut here of, of what I'm seeing going on. Um, I, I think this, this paints about as accurate as a, of a picture as I can paint here in uh, early February of 2018. Well, well, if the retail economy collapses, and, and, and the picture does look pretty bleak, it, if they don't keep that afloat, the Sears stores go, the JCPenney stores go, there's going to be a lot of people in, in the rural areas, and, and in, in economies like Panama City that depend on retail, and Bristol, Virginia has no manufacturing left. It depends on retail. They just built a, a few huge strip malls and, and the Bass Pro Shop and, and one of the other sporting goods outfits had already had also put a huge shop up there. I, I don't know which one. And, and there are anchor malls, right? There are anchors that they, they are anchor stores for giant strip malls now. And, and it's all retail. That's the entire economy. You work in a retail store, you work in fast food. And, and if the retail economy collapses, if Sears and JCPenney go and Toys R Us and a few other big chains, well, well kids aren't going to have anywhere to work. Nowhere. Young people, and and when I say kids, I mean that these are thirty-somethings that have nowhere to work except fast food. That these are people with college degrees in a lot of cases. Of course, there's sociology degrees, right, or or criminal justice or something ridiculous, marketing. But, well, they, they have they go to college and and they have nowhere to work but Sears, and then Sears is gone. So, but we have a. We have a dismal outlook, and and we had better, as a as a people, start to think about these things. I mean, we should have been doing this a long time ago, but yeah, it, it's time right now to really take a long, hard look at where this thing is headed. Because I mean, really, right now, you could call this this is probably the end of the good old days. Because what's up next is going to be. It's going to be like The Walking Dead. That the um, we we didn't get to talk about the wall this time. <laughs> no, we didn't. No, and there's there's a couple other topics we didn't get to either. Um, but I think we can save that for a future update because some of this is still kind of playing yeah. out. Um, I'm well, interested well, to see. The wall's not built, and it's, the swamp is still full. In in fact, the swamp is a lot fuller than it was in 2016. Well, yeah, and on the, I, I've got an audio clip that I, I didn't have time to, to to separate out and send to you, but you know, we'll we'll do a uh, we'll do another update here in a few months, and that will be part of it. Okay, thanks for being here. It's been nice hanging out with you.
Yeah, thanks for having me on again, Bill. And uh, people can, uh, if you're interested in reading more of my stuff or listening to it, you can you can find me. The blog is back up and running, donaldfox.wordpress.com. And the new JFK show on YouTube. Wonderful. Thank you. Yahweh bless. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thanks for being here. God bless.